This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run on BFM 89.9, 9.35 right now and time for the SNM show. This is, of course, the show where we rant about what's working in markets, what's not working. And I'm Melissa Idris with me, Julian Ng. And our guest this week, Andrew Stotts, a re- the research advisor of a fund that, a fund that Fortress Capital will be launching soon, focusing on stock selection in Asia. And this week, we're going to discuss the stock picking method that he's created. Good morning, Andrew. Welcome to the SNM show. Thank you very much. All right. So we're going to be focusing on this V. Sorry, FVMR method of stock selection. So FVMR stands for Fundamentals, Valuation, Momentum and Risk. That's just what it stands for. But what does it <laughs> Those mean, are just Andrew? Words. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thanks for having me on. What it, what it really means is that uh, it's, 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 it's easy to read a book, let's say, about Warren Buffett as an example and say, uh, hey, I really like value investing. But the truth is when you invest around Asia, as I do, value investing doesn't work in some markets. So what I try to do when I develop my FVMR framework is try to force myself to look at every angle for a stock, such as momentum, as an example. And if momentum was rising, maybe that would be a sign that it's worth considering that stock. But if you're only married to one type of methodology, then you're never going to look that wide. And so really, it was from practical need that I started to develop that methodology. And now I can see that when I talk to people that want to pick stocks, I always try to tell them that you should be looking from these four angles at least. I guess if you're talking from the perspective of professional fund managers, uh, perhaps uh, I, I don't know if it's safe to say that fund managers already do this uh, kind of stock selection process um, um, intuitively, whereas you're putting a more methodical method to it. Uh, am I right? That's correct. And I've been working in the field for many years. And basically what I saw was missing was that we didn't ask the question, what actually did work in Mm. picking stocks in a particular market? And so really that's my starting point is I go back and do an academic style of test on each market to ask the question, was it PE, was it price to book? So was it fundamentals, was it valuation, was it uh, risk management? What was it that produced outperformance over the last, let's say five or 10 years? That's my starting point. So I know each market around Asia what has worked and what hasn't. So is it is it just one or the other, Andrew? I mean, is it a, a mixture of a couple or three? Or uh, so what if the yeah. fundamentals are good, but then perhaps there's no momentum on this stock? So it's definitely not one factor. Otherwise, all you're doing is you're just trying to say, hey, what was the one thing that worked? Well, what if that one thing doesn't work anymore? So I want to make sure when I'm selecting stocks that I'm looking at a broader group. So I'm looking for about, let's say, a group of factors. Now, when we talk about FVMR, let's take valuation. That's something that everybody understands. We have PE, we have price to book, we have EV to EBITDA, many different measures. So underneath each of these FVMRs, let's say there's five or ten measures. And so there's many different measures underneath them. I'm grouping them in a way that makes sense in my mind. Then what I'm looking for is 
five to seven measures that I can find that were the best measures for that market. And that is my starting point before I start even considering individual stocks. Mm -hmm. Now, Andrew, just having a conversation with you before the show started, you have a very interesting background. And I guess this relates to the kind of debate that we have on air very often, uh, either on the SNM show or the Ring It and Send show, or even uh, in many of our talk sets, yeah. Melissa. Uh, and this is the debate about passive investing and active investing. And you believe in both. Uh, but the question I, I want to ask is that uh, that that mantra, you know, the the past performance is usually not an indicator of future performance. And when you look at what worked in the past, how do you extrapolate this into the future? Uh, okay, so that's a that's a, a question that really, if if I was trying to if I was focusing on what's the one or two things that's working in the market, then I would have to also be thinking about what will be the next new one or two things that work in the market. But when I look at, let's say, five to seven factors, I'm a little bit more spread out. I'm not trying to call that. So I would like to say that I'm on the cutting edge of the present. That's a good way. Of well, what does that part mean, of my, my academic research is in the area of the performance of financial analysts in forecasting the future. And how and, have they done and that? And guess what? <laughs> guess what? Financial analysts are about as equal as flipping a coin, just like everybody else. Do you know anybody? You know, think about it. Do you know anybody that consistently has predicted the future? Are we going to get calls from financial analysts? I, I don't mind if we get calls because I read all these awards that are dished out to people who uh, have done well in uh, the last one year or so. But uh, they, the question is whether they can be consistent right. uh, in the kind of earnings they deliver. Yeah, and the reason why, why I think... Uh, I think my feedback on this is valuable is because I was a financial analyst for 20 years. I was a sell-side analyst and I was doing that job. So when I critique the work of financial analysts, I'm doing it from a way of understanding it and helping financial analysts. And really my message, if there's a financial analyst listening, a young person that's just studied finance, gone into work, my main thing is don't spend all your time trying to forecast the future by building financial models, thinking that those are reliable. They are right. They are, they're useful for a purpose of understanding. But, but don't put as much, a, a, as much confidence as I put in it when I first started. I thought that was what it was all about. Okay, so n and yet now you're trying to uh, propose this model that is a future forecasting model, uh, the FVMR model. Wrong. The oh. reason why you're wrong about that is because FVMR is n I never forecast the future. If I know that my odds of picking the future are 50-50, which I know that's the case, then it's not good odds. I would rather understand the past. So if you say, for instance, in an economic cycle or the stock market cycle, you say, where is it going? Mm. But you don't realize where you are, then you may not know. In the 97 crisis in Asia, I was too young to know where we were. But now, as I can see cycles go over time, I would rather know that we're at the absolute bottom of the cycle than to know, I can't know when it's going to turn. So that's why I say cutting edge of the present. I need to know the present very well. So none of my work has forecasting in it. Yeah, if I can just dig down uh, deeper into one of those uh, factors. I mean, you have fundamentals, valuation, momentum, risk. I understand V, M, and R, but what... I mean, I intuitively know what fundamentals are, but mm. what, what exactly in your uh, technical viewpoint, in your model, what is it? 
So what I call fundamentals, the best way to think about it is, is a measure that I do. And I have a, a, a product that I do, and I, I look at all the companies in the world on this. It's called world-class benchmarking. And with world-class benchmarking, I'm looking at a combination of profitability and growth. The profitability I look at is ROA, and the growth I look at is EPS growth. Okay. And R then I ROA meaning a return, return on assets. On assets, yeah. And the reason why I look at return on assets is because I don't really care about how a business finances itself. I just care, can they make money on the assets in the business? So then what I do is I rank each of these against all competitors globally for these two measures. And then I do a 1 to 10 ranking, 1 being best, 10 being worst. Every single Malaysian company, I know exactly what their ranking is on those two factors, as well as all the companies in Asia. And then I do a composite score, which is called what I call profitable growth. So combining the profitability and the growth. Because what you really want is you, if, if you have a super high profit margin, but you're growing slowly, so what? Right. And if you have really high growth at a low margin, it's not good. So what I want to do is balance the two. So when I'm looking at fundamentals, I, I have a measure I use personally, which is called uh, profitable growth. Mm -hmm. And that's the best way to describe it. Andrew, earlier you said something that, that kind of stuck with me. You said that each market in Asia is different when you look at it from each of the FVMR angles, right? Yeah. Why are there different? Or, or, you know, I would have guessed that they would all be kind of similar, especially if you're talking about Asia and the similar kind of region. Okay, so the reason why... You, you're, you're right in saying that they're similar. They're driven by the same two emotions. Greed and fear. Correct. <laughs> there you go. That's it. It's instantaneous. And, uh, so greed and fear are the two emotions that are always driving us in the markets. And the more we understand that, the better we become at picking stocks and understanding our mentality. But we also have, there's other things that can infect, impact the market, such as a, a stampede. Some markets have more stampeding, like a herd of animals. Herd mentality. Uh, the herd mentality. And you know, China's one where we have the, the volatility of the Chinese market is three times the volatility of the U.S. market. We're talking about China A shares. If you talk about China A shares, you're talking about a risk that's three times the U.S. market for a return that's half. So it's, it's, it's what would be called low, a high risk, low return. Whoops, that's just the opposite <laughs> of what it's supposed to be. Mm. So each market has different. The, the other thing is that each market's going through different phases of development. So maybe a, one economy's booming while another one's suffering, right? So it's just that each of them are, are impacted by different factors. Have you back-tested some of your um, work and some of your recommendations to see how uh, the returns behavior would be like? Yeah, I... I as a sell-side analyst, uh, when I started really thinking about this, what I was doing was I was starting to um, question. And that's when you're questioning, then you start backtesting. The level of sophistication of my backtesting now is, is very high. And so what I'm doing is I'm backtesting in every market to understand the past. And that's, that's what I've done. And, and that, there, then what I do is then take the backtesting and then take what I've learned and try to apply it into my stock picking by ranking all the stocks by my best testing scores, those factors that worked, and then started constructing portfolios. So it was about two years of announcing portfolios before I started actually creating real portfolios off of that. So I have two portfolios in Thailand, and then the Fortress one will be the first one in, in, in Malaysia. More with Andrew Stotts, the research advisor for Fortress Capital, after this on BFM 89.9.
Good morning, 9.48 right now. It's Wednesday the 13th of April. You're listening to the SNM Show on The Morning Run with me, Melissa Idris, also Julian Ng. And our guest today, Andrew Stotts, Research Advisor for Fortress Capital. Andrew's here to talk about the FVMR strategy that he created for stock selection, fundamentals, valuation, momentum and risk. So let's get back to basics, Andrew. When we look at stock selection or just simply investing in the stock market, what do you think are the most common mistakes that we make? So I think uh, the first most common mistake when somebody's, let's say somebody's building a portfolio, a young person says, I want to invest my own money and I want to build a portfolio. The first thing is that they, they own too many, too few stocks. They try to get the top two or three or whatever. My, my research and my academic papers that I've published have focused on how many stocks you should own in Asia, and it's about 10. So my first recommendation to someone, and this is the reason why in my book I also mention that you've got to have time and knowledge and an interest to find 10 stocks. Yeah, this is a book that was published last year. You won't get rich in the stock market. That's a, a, <laughs> grand, a grand statement being made yeah, by Andrew. Right but on the cover. It's, it's a really interesting book. So get it if you have the chance. So you were saying, Andrew, you're yeah. saying that if you have the time, the interest and the, and the knowledge. knowledge. So if you have those or if you have the time and you don't have the knowledge, but you want to acquire it, great. So in that case, own 10 stocks. Why 10 stocks? Because by owning 10 stocks, you have eliminated most of the risk that any one stock will put you down and ruin your whole portfolio. Um, if you go beyond that, you don't get much benefit. Now, if you, if you go beyond that, the problem is, is that you also missed your chance to potentially outperform. Because you just get market returns. You just get market returns. Because if you have 100 stocks, you're almost close. You know, yeah. You're exactly at the market. But if you're from the passive school, then you would say, hey, I'm okay with market returns because that is very highly likely to be inflation beating, right? Uh, so, so correct. Now, if, you, if, so from a, a, if somebody came to me and said, I want to pick stocks, the first thing I'd tell them is you got to own 10. That would already be enough trouble for someone to say, I probably need to go to the passive school. Now, the problem that we have in a lot of markets in Asia is there's not a lot of passive products. Either there's not passive products or the passive products aren't cheap. Mm. And therefore, you lose a lot of the benefit of right. what a passive product is. Also, the second thing that most people, the biggest mistake that most people do is they invest in their home country only. It's called home country bias. And what ends up happening is that what happens if, if your own home country is going down for five years? Very dangerous. And, yeah. and this is really driving it very close to home because recently we saw uh, the ringgit crashing very substantially. And you actually have a recommendation also, and I want to tie this in, you're recommending a 15% stop loss uh, across all your holdings in Asia. What happens in a country like Malaysia when uh, not too long ago the entire market is falling, right? Do you sell your entire portfolio? I mean, uh, having that 15% stop loss. So basically, let's, 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 so now we'll talk about the third mistake that people make, and that is they don't plan ahead for what's going to happen when a particular stock falls. And mm -hmm. so they come to you after it's gone down by 40% and say, what should I do? <laughs> okay. Right? So that happens to me all the time. And people come to me. <laughs> You're not it, a magician, it's like Andrew. It's like if I was a psychiatrist. People go, oh, yeah, I had this really prob big problem with my mother when I was young. Okay. When people talk to me as a stock guy, they ask me, what do I do about the stock? You should have a collapsed. couch in your office. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the first thing is, well, you should have talked to me a long time ago. But basically what I would say is that for the average person that's actually picking stocks actively, you want to put a stop loss on every single one of them. If you're thinking about it from a quarterly perspective as I think about it and I reprice all my stocks on a quarterly basis, then about 15% would be enough. If you think about an annual basis, 
you say, I don't want to look at my portfolio for a whole year, then a 20 to 25% stop loss would be enough. And the point is you're predetermining, you're predetermining future action. And the value of that, if you test that action, if you test that portfolio, even if you just randomly selected 10 stocks and rebalance every year and put that, let's say 20 to 25% stop loss for a year period, you would massively outperform almost every market in Asia. I'm just wondering if you're going to miss out a kind of subsequent rebound. Because if you look again back at the situation of Malaysia, mm. what happened here, um, big crash, the entire market uh, probably fulfilled a 15% stop loss. And then it rebounded because um, the ringgit became a little bit more stable, in fact, strengthened. So how do you prevent yourself from missing out? I mean, that, okay, that's, so here's that's where, a greed, greed and fear thing. Yeah, right. right. So yeah, I, wanna, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't want to miss anything, right? Yeah. Well, I don't want to miss anything either, but the probabilities are not in your favor, right? Basically, what, I, what I'm trying to do, and the reason why I come up with these particular numbers is because I've back-tested these numbers and said, on average, this has worked. And it has added value to a portfolio. In other words, a portfolio would be larger in size after five or 10 years if you employ this type of a stop loss. So the first thing is that you have to understand, as, as I do in my case, I understand that, that the stop loss will add value over time, right? You were just talking about it takes time, right? It's a long time process. So mm -hmm. the first thing is that you've got to think about it from a long time. And the second thing is that you've got to realize you're going to be wrong. You know, if, if, I, if I'm wrong on my stop losses, even let's say 45% of the time, but I'm right 55% of the time, that means I got to suffer with 45%, yeah. let's say four or five stocks in, in a year out of 10 that I got wrong on the stop loss that, that, that didn't work. I'm willing to bear that because I know the long-term gain that I'm getting for the one or two of those or the five of those that, that did actually benefit from the stop so, loss. So sorry to press you on this. Those, those 10 stocks that I had in Malaysia came down more than 15%. Should I sell my entire portfolio? So in my case, I'm rebalancing my portfolio. So wait, I'll, I'll explain it in terms of myself. All right. Um, when I look at my portfolio, I'm rebalancing it on a quarterly basis. And what I'm advising on Fortress is a quarterly basis. And that means that I'm, if any of the stocks go down individually by, let's say, roughly 15%, it's different for each market, for each stock, but let's say roughly 15%, that I'm going to get out. Now, I've back-tested that across every market, and I've only found two times in most markets that that has been hit, and that has been hit by 50%. It's never been all the stocks. Okay. So I, 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 if we looked at the portfolio, because also, remember, if some of our stocks are a risk that are good on a risk measure, mm -hmm. then it could be that they go down 10% while the whole market goes down by you know 18 But yes, to answer your question, yes, I follow my rule because I develop my rule based upon a lot of testing and uh, my logic. Does, does that, uh, so you've done the Malaysian market here. What are the specifics you found about the Malaysian market? And I'm just going to take a point about the home bias that you mentioned earlier. Specifics for the Malaysian market using your, yeah, your strategy? Uh, one of the things about the Malaysian market is that um, price momentum has worked in the, in the Malaysian market. And what I found is that earnings momentum has not worked. And that's the two types of momentum that I'm looking at. So that's an interesting one because if you're saying I'm a value investor and you disregard stocks that are starting to move, you may be missing opportunities that you could have captured if you were looking at it, let's say, as I do from this FVMR framework. And how do I translate that into strategy? Do I say that, okay, for stocks that have moved about 10%, I buy more into it? So what, what I'm doing, what it, okay, let's just say that you are a value investor and you say, okay, I don't have a lot, many opportunities, but let's say there's five stocks that I like. 
what you want to be able to do is try to look at that five or 10 stocks or whatever that is and see which one's moving, which one's got upward price momentum. Um, from let's say three months, six months, 12 months, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a daily type of momentum, but a, a near-term momentum. And if you see that near-term momentum, then that may be an, a sign that, hey, it's worth getting into this thing, even though I like value, but none of these are like super cheap, but they're the best that I can find, then I would combine it with that. Well, I'm sure, I mean, that we could go into many more uh, angles of your me- methodology, but what would you say, I mean, to sum up, how would you sum up your what we've discussed today? That's right. And also a very pressing question, of course, is uh, we want uh, untold riches, right? So how can one <laughs> always, always. always accumulate uh, riches in the stock market? Uh, a young so person. Not, notwithstanding your book, you won't get rich so in the, the stock the, market. You missed the second part of the title <laughs> okay. in the yellow. Yes, I did. Sorry. Until you change the way you okay. think about so it. So you yeah. won't get rich in the stock market until you change the way you think about it. Right. And so the main thing, if I was, if one message I would get across, to particularly to young people, is that you've got to start investing and leave money in the market for a long period of time because we always talk about the power of compound interest and all that. Well, the reason why that's nonsense in most cases is because nobody ever leaves their money in long enough. It takes at least 20 years to get the exponential return from compound interest. So if you want to get rich in the stock market, you've got to start now and you've got to, and as I tell my nieces who I wrote the book for, I tell them, never sell when you can own a diversified, such as the Vanguard type of fund that owns every stock in the world, never sell yeah. until you reach a million dollars. Wow, there you go. Advice from Andrew Stotts, the research advisor for Fortress Capital, who's our guest today. Andrew, thank you for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng for the SM Show on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.